Heavenly Father, as we just read, your loving kindness is everlasting, and uh, that is found in your word, which is also everlasting. God, your word, uh, not one jot or tittle from your word will pass away, even though all heaven and earth pass away, according to the words of our Lord Jesus. So we're thankful for this time, God, that we get to hear your word proclaimed and continue on in our series in Genesis um, and for the text, our passage this morning, which directs our hearts once again to give praise and thanks to you. And we thank you for your sovereign grace and your love, which endures forever. And thankful for this time, God, um, in your word. So I pray blessing upon it and blessing upon everybody who is hearing physically here today and also uh, from the live stream. We're grateful uh, for this precious time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us turn to the text in Genesis chapter 8. And while we're turning there, I'll remind you of a somewhat humorous Christian expression which actually rings pretty true. Some of you have probably heard this uh, regarding trials. It's said that Christians are either in a trial or about to enter into a trial or just coming out of a trial. Um, And that's kind of humorous, but somewhat accurate. uh, If you think about it, our Christian life and Jesus says in this world, You will have tribulations, you will have troubles, and that's for all sorts of reasons. But um, that somewhat uh, rings true, that we are either in a trial or just coming out of one or about to enter into one. Putting ourselves in Noah's shoes for a moment, or maybe sandals, or maybe he was barefoot, I don't know. But this is the calm after the storm. The flood is over, it has been over, and he's about to disembark the ark with his family and all the animals. Probably a number of thoughts and feelings come over him as he steps foot onto the ground for the first time in over a year. Can you imagine? Maybe there was a sense of vindication, right? All those years, almost 100, 120 years, building this ark and preaching righteousness, proclaiming righteousness to everybody around him. Maybe there was a sense of vindication at this point. I warned them. I tried. All of it came true. The flood, God's judgment, death. And maybe a bit of confirmation that he was not crazy all those years building that ark. Probably a sense of peace and comfort and privilege since God rescued him, rescued him and his family His faith in God confirmed and solidified. Possibly, along with all of that, a a sense of real awe and mixed in with some trepidation, even. Realizing that everyone in the entire world is gone. Maybe there's even a little bit of uneasiness regarding the future. The text in Genesis actually doesn't reveal any of this to us, whether Genesis or the rest of the Bible. But our passage today does show us what Noah did upon leaving the ark. And I think we can surmise overall, as he comes out of this stormy trial, this trial like no other, 
that God is utterly worthy of praise and thanksgiving. And so this is why I felt like this was a very fitting text and message for us today, for our Thanksgiving service, Faith Bible Church, and everyone who is here with us. Our sermon title is Coming Out of the Storm, Giving Thanks to God. And the passage is Genesis 8. We're doing verses 15 to 22 today. And you have the theme in your bulletin there, and I'll read it to you. It's God in gracious provision will sustain life on earth, giving us opportunity for eternal life in heaven. And that's kind of like the big picture that um, I want us to keep in mind as we read the passage, as we go through it. And um, I'm going to highlight three reasons why we can give thanks to God uh, on this season and any season uh, while we go through it. But um, that's the big picture. God in his gracious provision will sustain physical life on earth. Why? To give us opportunity, to give sinners opportunity to have eternal life in heaven. Okay, so keep that in mind as we read the passage, Genesis chapter 8. And as we honor the word of God, I'll ask you to stand up once again, if you're able. Genesis 8, verses 15 through 22 is the text for this morning. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Please be seated. So with that theme, a big, big picture in mind, I want to submit to you these three reasons that we can give thanks to God in this season and any season, in fact. And I didn't give you any blanks. I just laid them out there for you on your bulletin. The first one is that God fulfills his promises to us. God fulfills his promises to us, verses 15 through 19. We see that God fulfills his promises to Noah, that he and his family and the animals would be saved from the flood. And now it's time to consummate that word by exiting the ark. As we know, it's been just over a year now since flood day. And as far as we know, that was the last time God spoke to Noah. Genesis 7 verse 1, right? It says, enter the ark, you and all your household. So basically, the last time God spoke to Noah, he said, get in the ark. And now, chapter 8 verse 15, he says, get out of the ark. 
right? And those might have been the sweetest words for Noah to hear at that point. Okay, leaving the ark meant hope for new life, for animals, for the earth, for nature, and human life. God told Noah in, in there to bring all the animals out with him. Why? So that they may breed abundantly on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth, verse 17. So the earth would be repopulated, right? This is part of the recreation of sorts, a new start for the earth, for the animal world, and for humanity. We'll see that. By the way, you might wonder at this point, what did Noah and his family see as they walked around on the earth after this great epic flood? It's difficult to say exactly, and the text doesn't speak to it, but basically it would be ruins of a dead and buried world. Imagine every single person that Noah and his family had ever known, relatives, family, friends, neighbors, All of them died in the flood. Death abounded, in other words. It was all around. So many perished. God's justice was done. But did God's love for the world end? No, did not. His love remained. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Right? Psalm 136. Um, To borrow a line from the classic movie, The Princess Bride, death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it for a while. Perhaps that can be applied on a more profound level. Speaking of the deep, deep love of God, of Jesus, which goes far beyond human romantic love to the praise and glory of God. He saves Noah. He keeps his word This is part of his steadfast love to him and to the rest. So Noah and the family step onto that dry ground. Death did abound, maybe mostly underneath the ground as the earth was being restored from its ruins. This does bring us to a side question, doesn't it? These four to 5,000 years later, and especially as archaeologists over the centuries have looked and explored what's underneath the grounds of our planet, If there was a global flood, as the Bible describes, what should we expect to find today? Answers in Genesis gives a a good pithy answer, and they even made a song on it. But it goes, billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. And this describes the fossil record that has been discovered through the centuries. Obviously, Noah would not have been able to see all this, but that's exactly what we find today. The fossil record is the largest graveyard in the world, so to speak. Okay, it spans across all the earth. Now, most secular scientists believe that this fossil record of death was laid down over hundreds, millions of years. But the Bible teaches that death and thorns and disease that leads to death did not enter the world until after Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, which was less than 10,000 years ago. We should understand that even though most secular geologists insist 
that those sedimentary rock layers were deposited gradually over eons of time, okay, which it had, they say it had to happen over millions, billions of years, with death occurring throughout, the truth is that fossilization can actually occur very quickly. It just requires the right conditions. To quote an article from Answers in Genesis, quote, to become a fossil, a living thing must be out of the reach of other creatures and processes which would destroy it. This includes not only scavengers, but also decomposers like bacteria. Where can you hide from microscopic bacteria? Likewise, the dead body must be kept from oxidation. Only by undergoing rapid burial, away from scavengers, bacteria, and oxygen, can an organism be fossilized. Yet, we find fossils in almost every rock type. Surely, catastrophic processes are displayed in the fossils. End quote. The point is, this fossilization happens in in a rapid process. Whether it's fossilized leaves and plants, which are... When you look at them, they're completely flattened, even beyond their their normal shape. They're completely flattened and preserved for thousands of years. Um, Those have been discovered. Whether they're petrified animals, some have been found literally uh, while they're in the middle of consuming another animal or in the middle of of giving birth. There's literally fossils that have captured that. Um, We see evidence uh, of a major catastrophe that would produce those kinds of quick conditions necessary to rapidly bury and protect creatures so that they can be fossilized. And by the way, too, uh, there's no geologist, whether Christian or non-Christian, who dispute the fact that fossils of sea creatures have been found on every continent in rock layers which are high above sea level in mountainous regions of the earth. The only explanation for that phenomenon is that the ocean waters at some time in the past flooded above the mountains. Hmm, just like Genesis 7 tells us it did. So I don't want to sidetrack too much here, but the question came up in my own mind as a follow-up. What about all the human fossils? If there were millions, maybe even billions of people on the earth, where are they? First of all, we have to understand this. Much less than 1% of the fossil record that we have today are of land creatures. 95% of the fossil record that we have are actually marine, marine creatures, marine animals, like clams and corals and trilobites and et cetera, mostly invertebrates that have like a hard outer shell. Of the remaining 5%, Most of those are plants. So there's like 0.001 something, less than 1% of the fossil record, which we have today, that are made up of land animals, which include reptiles and dinosaurs, amphibians, mammals, birds, and humans. And so Dr. John Morris of Institute of Creation Research uh, gives a good explanation here. He says... Quote, land creatures have what could be called a low fossilization potential. As land animals die in water, they bloat, float, and come apart. 
It is very difficult to trap a bloated animal underwater in order for it to be buried. Furthermore, scavengers readily devour both flesh and bone. Seawater and bacterial action destroy everything. And the scouring ability of underwater mud flows common during the flood would grind bone to powder. What land fossils were preserved in flood sediments would have been buried late in the flood, near the surface, and would have been subject to erosion and destruction once again as the floodwaters rushed off the rising continents. The chances of such a fossil intersecting the Earth's surface, being found by someone, and then being properly and honestly identified is vanishingly small, end quote. So, in other words, it's very difficult for, like I said, there's very, very little. The only uh, fossils that we actually hear about or are interested in are animals, right? Or supposed humans or dinosaurs. And so when I asked my son Joseph the other day, what percent do you think uh, of the fossil record are, are animals? He said, hmm, maybe 60%. And um, that was not a surprising answer to me because that, that's all we ever, who cares about plants, right? <laughs> and then just uh, who cares about like a little clam or so we get all excited when we hear about animals. But um, the truth is very, 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 very small percent, very little uh, of the actual fossil record is of land animals and even less of humans. So all to say, I want us to remember also God's purpose for the flood in the first place. It was to destroy, he says, blot out from the face of the earth all humans, especially humans, all living creatures, land creatures, actually, um, in particular, in verses 21, 22 of chapter 7 and chapter 6, verse 7. God decided to blot them from the face of the earth. So anyway, that's it with human fossils, okay? Hopefully we scratched that itch for the morning. Back to our main point here. When Noah and family depart from the ark, this was a new start for the earth for the animal world and for humanity. Looking ahead to chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should, because this was the part of the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve when God first created the world. And so God preserves Noah and family through this global destruction of the flood. Every other living being was destroyed except for them, just as God had promised. They've been saved by God's hand. They're exiting the ark to begin anew. God was faithful to keep his word to them. But beyond keeping his word to Noah, he keeps his word to all man, to us. Okay, the key promise that is fulfilled to mankind is that the promised seed from Genesis 3.15, right? Beyond just preserving physical life, the hope of eternal life remains. Okay, there will be a seed of the woman who will eventually come and crush the serpent Satan's head and defeat the enemies of sin and death. Okay, through God's rescue of Noah, the promised seed, the promised savior, the descendant of the woman, has not perished, has not died. His future coming is secured through the survival of Noah and his sons, specifically Shem, as we'll see in coming weeks, to sinful humanity, God keeps his word to break the curse of sin and death and Satan. Okay, mind you, this was all of God's sovereign grace, right? For Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Praise be to God. So, 
Verse 18 of chapter 8 says, So Noah went out, his son, his wife, his son's wives with him. Every beast, every single animal, every, 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 went out by their families from the ark. So Noah obeys God's command to leave the ark. Whatever the outside might have looked like, whatever fears or anxiety, trepidation, whatever, he does what God says. He takes his family and every single creature out with him that moves, exiting. So what's our application for this? We, along with Noah, we can thank God for being faithful to keep his promises to us. It's very basic, very simple, but incredibly profound. He tells us there's not only temporary physical rescue, but eternal spiritual salvation found when we believe in the promised seed, the one and only Savior of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises to all who repent and believe in him alone to receive the gift, free gift of eternal life. It's a guarantee. All the promises of God are kept and made alive in the reality of Christ who died and rose again for sinners. We shouldn't miss this, dear people, as we study and read the post-flood story here in Genesis. Let us not miss that big picture main point. And we should give proper thanks to God for his indescribable gift. Pastor Bill mentioned 2 Corinthians 9.15 for harvest dinner. So God fulfills his promises to us. The second reason I want to submit that we can thank God this morning is that God accepts our devoted worship, verses 20 and 21. Notice the very first thing Noah does after leaving the ark. He doesn't look for stuff to build a home or a barn. He doesn't go looking for food. He doesn't go exploring. Noah built an altar to worship the Lord. His priority and purpose was to worship God, and God is pleased with his worship. And we'll get to that in a moment so we can thank and praise God all the more. But first, first, looking at Noah building an altar to worship God. We learned back in Genesis 4, if you recall, that Seth's descendants began calling on the name of the Lord, right, being the more righteous line than Cain's line, right? And even before that, we saw Cain and Abel. They gave offerings to God, probably using altars for their sacrifices. When we jump ahead in Genesis, we see building altars unto God was the practice of godly men throughout the Old Testament, even beyond Genesis. But in Genesis, Abraham, in chapter 12, verse 7, he arrives in Shechem and he builds an altar. He moves uh, a bit to the land of Bethel in verse 8. And the first thing he does, build an altar. Chapter 13, verse 18, he arrives in Hebron and he builds an altar. 22, verse 9, on Mount Moriah, as he's about to offer Isaac, he builds an altar. His son Isaac in Genesis 26:25 in Beersheba builds an altar. Jacob in chapter 35, verse 7, in Bethel once again. All those passages tell us that building an altar is the first thing they do when arriving at a place. And for Noah, who's newly landed on the post-flood earth, there's no people or huts or buildings or any civilization of any kind. It's all been destroyed. And the first structure he makes is an altar. Hey, of all the many things that he could have done when he gets off the ark, he starts with constructing this altar to the Lord. And what is it for? 
What is it for? Well, it's for sacrifices. And he takes of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And that's what those extra sevens were for, of the clean animals, right, that God told Noah to put into the ark um, and birds. And this is a foreshadowing of the sacrificial offerings that God commanded Moses and the Israelites to practice, where in Leviticus it was an offering for sin and a thanksgiving to God. This is found in Leviticus 1 and 5 and 9 and 22 and 23 and so on. And I love the small details given here in in Genesis that Noah took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. It wasn't just a few of the clean ones, not even most of them. He sacrificed some of all of the clean animals, which really, when you think about it, it tells us that it would take in some doing. It would take some doing. It would take some time, some effort. Um, This was out of Noah's overflowing praise and gratefulness to God. Okay. Listen, he's leading his family in this worship as a first priority, right? as soon as they get off the ark. So his dedication also shows in the burnt offerings. These holy burned offerings given later in the Old Testament indicates a person's complete devotion to the Lord. So this is first priority of Noah as he leaves the ark, giving thanks to God for sparing his life, For sparing his family, keeping his promises, Noah takes none of it for granted. He puts God first and displays his gratitude to his creator. So for us this morning, beloved Faith Bible Church, especially as Thanksgiving is approaching, a good reminder, what is our our first priority as the holidays approach? Soon after this is Christmas, right? How are we, especially us husbands and fathers, leading our families to prioritize worship of God um, in this season? And whether it's this season or any other season, are we being faithful to lead our wives and our families, our children, in worship of God? Another thought comes to mind sometimes when, when people move, they're, they're either coming or going, What is your first priority when you consider a move, when you're moving to a different state or doing to a different location? Is it to find uh, a home church, find a a spiritual home where you can worship God and assemble with the saints? It should be our priority. It's a reminder to us that a heart of thanksgiving must be cultivated. Um, In other words, it needs to be it needs to be grown uh, God has to tell us in First Thessalonians, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, right? Because sometimes we, we remember to, to thank God, and other times we take things for granted. And so this is part of why we, as part of our worship, um, sing at church in worship to God. In Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20, says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And the parallel passage uh, to that, which we went over in youth night the other night, was Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, 
in your hearts to God. Okay, so the commonalities with those is singing and, and with, with thanksgiving. Okay, those are the things that are, are overflows of being filled with the Spirit and having God's Word richly dwelling within us. And so God gives us plenty of reason to be thankful to Him. Let us look further at, at God's response to such devoted worship. Okay, clearly, He accepts it. He accepts Noah's. And beyond just acceptance of the offerings... We see pleasure, and God is pleased with true worship and sacrifice. Verse 21a, it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And he smelled the soothing aroma. This is an anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, which is uh, assigning a human attribute to a non-human being, in this case to God, Okay, assigning a non-human trait to God, a uh, description to help us understand what God is like, even though he is indescribable. Okay, so God smells the soothing aroma. That is, God didn't just observe it. He didn't just notice that, oh, Noah's down there offering a sacrifice to me. Uh, but rather, he, he smelled it. He took it in. He received it. And the implication is, is that he was delighted with it. His response to Noah's offerings is favorable. It's pleasing. And so we can be thankful to God this season that he is accepting of our worship. He's even pleased with our offerings to him. And I want to encourage you today that God is not a hard to please father. Hey, think about this. He is the one who provides us the means to worship him. Okay. Um, we even see that, like, who, for Noah, who provided the, the stones to build the altar? Who told him to put those extra clean animals on the ark so that he could sacrifice and worship him? Who provided the wood? Who provided the fire? Hey, God provides the means for us, too, to worship him. Who gave us our bodies? Who gave us our, our hands, our voices to sing to him? Who gave us our, our breath to breathe and be able to be here? Who gave us our money and our finances and this church building and this campus? Okay. God provides the means for us to worship him. And he is pleased. He takes delight when our worship is genuine and true and devoted as it was by Noah. When we come prioritizing him, putting him first in our heart and our life, praising him, we come to church and we have this desire to, to exalt Christ and to build up one another here at Faith Bible Church, hey, God is pleased. He's actually delighted with our worship. And obviously, this just doesn't go just for Sundays, right? Second Corinthians 5.8, what does Paul write there? We, Christians, we make it our ambition to be what? Pleasing to the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8. Okay? Everyday goal. Uh, of our life as blood-bought sinners is to be pleasing to the Lord. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, you know it well. But our very lives are supposed to be the sacrificial offering of worship to God. And, and so be exhorted and also be encouraged this morning by all of that. Okay? So God fulfills his promises to us. We're highlighting these reasons to, to give thanks uh, this season and any season. He fulfills his promises to us. He accepts our devoted worship, beyond just accepting it, he's delighted, he's pleased with it. 
Lastly, God pledges his uncommon grace upon sinful mankind. He pledges uncommon grace upon sinful mankind. God's delight in Noah's worship is also seen in this pledge in verses 21 and 22. As a result of Noah's offerings, God says to himself, he determines in his heart not to destroy the earth and man with it again. And we're kind of invited into the inner thoughts of the Lord here. He doesn't speak this pledge out to Noah yet, but looking ahead again to chapter 9, he expands on it there more. And we see that God gives the rainbow as the sign of his covenant with Noah, and specifically that God will never again destroy man and all the creatures on earth by water. Okay, uh, We'll see this in a few Sundays, but uh, chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 15, he says, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So in verse 21 of chapter 8, This is the beginning of that covenant. God says to himself that he will never again curse and destroy the ground and every living thing, he says, as I have done. And so the interesting part is the reason he gives in verse 21. Look at that. I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The four there... Um, it means more than just because. Okay? A lot of times, most times even, comma four means because. But here it is an explanatory for. Okay? As in although or even though. So I can paraphrase it by saying this. God pledges, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, even though his heart is evil from his youth. Okay? I will never again destroy every living thing, although... Man's heart intent is wicked. This is a vivid demonstration of God's grace. He determines not to exercise deserved judgment, even though it would be justified due to man's sinful heart. This, This phrase teaches us again about the doctrine of human depravity. Before the flood, after the flood, it's still the same. Wicked, evil, it says from youth, from birth. And yet God restrains his wrath against our sins. He's going to pour it out onto his own son instead, the promised seed, the promised savior. This should cause us to give praise and thanks to God this season, every season for his great mercies toward us. According to this 2022 um, Ligonier Ministries, which is uh, the ministry that R.C. Sproul founded, um, they did a state of theology survey back in 20 last year. Um, according to that survey, 65% of evangelicals in America believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% of evangelical 
people believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. And I'm here to tell you that that is a that is a heresy and it is a widespread heresy believed by many people in churches across the globe, not just America. Um, It's a heresy because it is a denial of original sin and it leads into a false gospel. If we're all innocent, why do we need a savior? It says that Jesus, his name is Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. Martin Luther wrote, quote, our first birth is damnable. Okay, this is true. That is that is a biblical statement. Our our first birth, our physical birth is is damnable. Okay, the Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. Psalm 51 says in my in sin, my mother conceived me. I'm a born natural sinner. Listen, beloved, if we don't hear the God, if we don't hear God thunder from Mount Sinai, which is his book of the law, then we will not hear the gospel tones of Christ on Mount Calvary. Amen. We need to know our condition. So back to Genesis, though man be incredibly sinful, God will not judge them in this way. He will not destroy them with a flood again. Instead of that, what has God pledged? What has God pledged? That's later. Verse 22. We'll get to that. Verse 22 says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Okay, this is what's known as common grace, which I always say is uncommon grace. Um, because there's a, a wrong way to understand what common means there. Um, this is what is not deserved, what is not merited. Okay? And it extends to all peoples on the earth. That's what they mean when they say common grace. Okay? It's, it's widespread. It's to all. God pledges a return to regularity and continuity in the realm of nature and life on earth. Those, those four things there, sea time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day and night, Agriculture, weather, seasons, time, God guarantees with all the changes in the post-flood Earth's conditions and environment, regularity in these primary areas of nature and of human life, human existence is promised. Seasonal cycles, reaping and sowing times, temperature changes as the calendar days pass. This oath is given to all mankind. All sinners, the righteous, the unrighteous, believers, unbelievers, Christians, non-Christians, thus common grace. Jesus says in Matthew 5:45, right? He, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the, unri- on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so this reminds us of the verse from the great, great old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. Right. And so, dear people, I want to just comfort you today. There's no need to worry about the planet. God has guaranteed that nature will continue. He says in the verse, it will not cease until he says so. Many people were alarmed uh, five years ago, back in 2018, 
that our planet will come to its end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. So we're almost halfway there, right? Six more years left until the end of the world. Um, these kinds of environmental alarmist predictions, whether it's global warming or an ice age, etc., they've been going on since the 1960s. All of them have uh, not come to uh, fulfillment. They've all failed. So uh, there's no need to fear. God says in his uncommon grace, while the earth remains, nature shall not cease. And this is reason again for us to give thanks to God this season and any season. Now, there will come a time when God brings things to a close again. He will not judge the world with a flood the next time. But, as has been exclaimed in Second Peter chapter 3, it's not something that we necessarily um, look forward to, but Second Peter chapter 3, we understand it in the right sense. Uh, if you want to turn there with me, this is a, a good word for us today as we transition into our conclusion. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter writing, Second Peter 3, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Okay, people doubting that God, that Jesus is going to return again, right? Verse 5, for when they maintain this, when they say this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? For fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And skip to verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Why is God going to keep things going? Why this pledge of life and nature continuing to exist, as we just saw from our last point? Well, this brings us back to our big picture idea, our theme for today. God in gracious provision sustains life on earth and gives us opportunity for eternal life in heaven to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, listen. Dear people, it's never too late to repent. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to humble yourself and submit your life and heart to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith in him who died for your sins. It's never too late as long as you have breath. But someday it will be too late. Your judgment day is coming. And so listen to God's heart in verse 9 of Second Peter chapter 3. He says, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow 
He's not late. He's not loitering. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's the beautiful, wonderful gospel invitation that is proclaimed to you once again today. If you are not a Christian this morning, let the word of God convict your heart. Let the spirit change you and transform you and give you new life that you would turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Listen, life is not merely about physical survival. It's not about happiness on this earth. We're not trying to bring God's heaven down to this earth so we can all be happy and prosperous. Okay, Life is not just being blessed with material things and just even emotional happiness. That, that ends. Okay, God is giving us time on this earth. He gives us breath even today so that we would direct our attention, our heart's attention towards him, towards eternity. That's what Jesus was concerned about. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his eternal soul? Let's not miss the point. Rather, let us be like the man who sits on the tack, who always gets the point. He always gets the point, which is, again, God in gracious provision sustains life here on earth so that we would have opportunity to turn from our sins and believe in Christ for eternal life in heaven. And these three reasons that we give thanks to God that we've highlighted this morning, they point to more than just temporal, physical life. God loves us to our eternal souls. And so whether we're in a trial or about to come or about to enter into a trial, or we're just leaving a trial, let us be thankful for God fulfilling his promise to us, being pleased and accepting our devoted worship, and for pledging his uncommon grace to even sinners like us. He wants our thanksgiving not to be just for this season, or for this week, or for this time, but forever, into eternity, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed with your grace and mercy towards us today. Thankful that we can come to you and see from your word uh, reasons to be thankful. But our hearts are directed towards you once again. And we, we want to be reminded. We want to be refreshed. We want to be renewed. And some of us, God, we want to come to you for the first time with the the gospel truth that you care not just for our lives here on this earth, but you are primarily concerned with our souls, which will last forever in heaven. So I pray, God, that we have received this word with, with the exhortation that has been given with, but also with encouragement that you are worthy of our praise and thanks and you are not a hard to please God but one who is so merciful, so gracious, and we are called to be your children, sons and daughters in Christ. Uh, We thank you, God, and praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.